0: This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, I want to take up where I left off last week with a story of epiphany that happened after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We've talked a lot about this story, but there's so much in the story that I can't possibly unpack it all in one week. So we're going to hit it again, and I want to show you some really important stuff And it's going to lead to an incredibly important, perhaps one of the more important ten minutes in the life of our church uh, at the end of the service. But to lead to that moment, uh, let's look uh, to this idea of epiphany. Let me make a statement about epiphany. The sermon series has been between Emmanuel and epiphany. We'll explain more about that if you haven't been here. But I want to make this statement about epiphany, which means appearance. Emmanuel, which means God with us. If God's appearance does not create God's presence, then God's disappearance does not remove God's presence. If God's appearance does not create God's presence, then God's disappearance does not negate God's presence. And by appear, the emphasis is greatly on the eye of the beholder. The idea of appearance implies that we are the ones who allow God to appear or disappear. It's all about our eyes. Now, presence, the presence of God is ubiquitous. The presence of God is dependent upon the character and nature of God. God's everywhere. So God's always present. But to the end that God appears and manifests and we experience God, um, that, to a great extent, is upon us. So... Let's look back to the story of the Emmaus-bound disciples, and let's go through some things here quickly. Luke 24, um, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. Now watch this. After the resurrection, Sunday afternoon, after he got out of the grave that morning, and behold, two of them, disciples, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Hearts broken, they're headed back to their lives, Jesus is gone. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing Jesus himself, not just Jesus, Jesus himself. The author is trying to emphasize something here. You know what? It's being emphasized presence. Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Can we all agree that's Emmanuel? That's Jesus with them. That's God with them. Now, they have Emmanuel and he is with them. Verse 16, interesting verse. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now, I want to say something about that. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. What's that mean? Do a little work here of interpretation. What does it mean that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him? The question then is what was preventing their eyes from recognizing him? We're not sure because this is interpretable in a couple of ways. The King James Version, I'm going to show you how different translations deal with this. Even the original Greek syntax does not give us all of the answer because language never captures, it just points. But the King James Version that I grew up with says their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Now, their eyes were holden. That's good old Shakespearean language, but I can work through that. I know what it means. Their eyes were covered somehow. But listen to this, that they should not know him. The should there, at least from my background, the should sounds like God's involved. When you start getting into shoulds and shouldn'ts, that feels like God's there because that's what, how God kind of felt to me. You should do this, you shouldn't do that. The new King James cleans it up on the front side that eyes were holden. It clarifies for modern parlance and says their eyes were restrained. Well, restrained. That feels like there's an external thing at least. Maybe someone restraining them. Their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So the New King James takes the should not off, so I kind of lose a little bit of the divine thing. And it simply says so that they didn't know him. You feel a little difference between they should not know him and they did not know him. But at least the New King James says there was a restraining. But again, why? How were they restrained? Who was doing the restraining? All right, New Century Version and NIV, same, same phrase. They were kept from recognizing him. Now what's that feel like to you? It's the Bible, so you know God's involved. They were kept from recognizing him. Could you imply there that it was God who was keeping them? Can you prove that it was God who was keeping them? No, because there may have been other things involved. New Living Translation, as it often does, makes a strong commentary. For those who like decisiveness, you'll like the New Living Translation. You may disagree with it, but it makes, it doesn't just do translation. It pretty strongly sometimes does interpretation. I'll tell you what, I'll show you what I mean. The New Living Translation, listen to the translation. But they did not know who he was because God kept them from recognizing him. You see, translations... Now, what I'm trying to tell you today is you only need to read the King James Version. (laughs) We laugh about that because we've all been through that and had that sensibility, but to their defense, our forebears who were sincere in that, this is why. And then the ones who finally realized that it was not the most scholarly academic of all of our translations... They almost do the same thing by replacing it with the NRSV or NASB or the NIV and say, this one's the one. You see why? You know, everybody brings their Bible and I say, let's turn to Luke 24. If you were reading with me and I was reading, can you see how different translations could lead to? All right. CEV backs off a little bit and says, but they did not know who he was. Ah, CEV literally does the exact opposite of the NLT. The CEV says... We're backing out, we're not going to make a decision. We'll just tell you, the least we know, they didn't know who he was. Thank you, CEV, for letting me do my own interpreting for the context of the story and the context of my heart. Message, I like Eugene Peterson. He's great, good scholar, great professor, and a wonderful pastor. People don't know that about him. One of the most influential books in my pastoral life was his book, The Contemplative Pastor. Peterson stays out of the fray, too. He's a pastor, not just a scholar. He stays out of the fray and says they were not able to recognize him. Scholars are divided, and I am, too, because I could argue it either way, and I think both ways would be okay. I do not put it past God to sovereignly, for whatever reason, cover the eyes To cover the eyes of someone in a circumstance like this. I don't put that past God. I can tell you there was a time in my life. That I thought that's the way God sovereignly operated always. Meticulously controlling everything. I got tired of that idea of meticulous control. And it didn't make sense to me. So I went to the other side of. You know, a, a full process or open theism. A friend of mine, Greg Boyd, or a friend, uh, not of mine, but a friend of me through books and a mentor, a, real o- a great guy on this issue of open theism. It's the opposite of reform, predestination, all of that. He's coming in February. But I went all the way over to that side of process theology and said God would never do that. So it was, there was a time when God always did that, meticulously controlled everything, and then you react. I mean, that's what the 20s are for, isn't it? And the 30s. Hopefully not the 40s. But Iraq react and say he doesn't control anything. Now, the older I get, almost 47, I'm, I'm no sage, but you begin to accumulate some convention, maybe not wisdom, but uh, the less that I use the words always and never in a sentence with God. I just, I don't do a lot of always and nevers with God. And so I'm not putting it past Maybe I'm not putting it past that God's the one who covered their eyes. Maybe the NLT's right. Don't know. I get it. I also know that people can be kept from seeing God's presence by something other than the sovereignty of God. People can be kept from seeing God's presence by their own pain. Tears can create a prism through which you sometimes see more clearly, sometimes you see less clearly. Their boat was sinking and he came walking on the water and the Bible said they thought it was a demon. King James cleans it up a little bit. They thought it was a ghost. No, they thought he was a demon. I mean, they they looked at Jesus and Jesus through tears looked like a demon. They were experiencing Emmanuel, but there was no epiphany. Emmanuel is about your safety. Epiphany is about your peace. You are safe because God is with you. You sense safety and can be peaceful if you see that. But those aren't always the same. And I want to tell you this, their boat was filling up with water, he came walking on the water, they saw him as a demon because that's what tears do sometimes. They skew your vision. I mean how many of you through tears and pain have not been able to receive love and even pushed it away like it was hate and it had nothing to do with what was being offered or present to you, it was your own eyes. We, We know that. But I just want to say They had no peace when they saw the demon, but I want to tell you something, they were completely safe. Because your safety doesn't depend upon your perception, it depends upon God, and God is with you. That's Emmanuel. I can't promise you epiphany and peace today, because that's a journey, it's a roller coaster, we all go through that cycle. I can promise you Emmanuel today, I know the difference uh, between those two things even familiarly with my little girl because I remember when Nina began to push early that she wanted to play in the front yard without me out there micro or controlling it. And she wasn't old enough. She didn't have the chops to play in the front yard. It was too close to a dangerous road there, Oxford Glen. But she wanted to so badly that one day I gave her some wings, John. I said, well, go play. And she was there in the yard, sands me to her perception. But I was standing, Thelma, at the door with my hand on the knob peering through the window. And I want you to know, she had no epiphany of dad, but she had dad's Emmanuel. I was there. And I want you to know, in spite of her not sensing my presence, she was safe. Because at any moment, if she would have headed toward that road, should have been safe. And I want all of you today who are experiencing the peace of safety to celebrate that. I want those of you who do not have the peace of safety to hear me. You're safe. And if you can't believe it for yourself, let some of us believe it for you, and then you can do that for us when we go through our time. So, 17th verse of the same chapter, Luke 24, a lot in this. Jesus asked them, he's present, what were you talking about as you walked along? I love that about him, that he does not interrupt the spiritual journey with epiphanies, because it seems here that even Jesus values process more than epiphany. And he does not circumvent holy processes and journeys and force people to the end result of epiphany. A lot of good work happens between Emmanuel and epiphany. So Jesus asked them, what were you talking about as you walked along? The two of them stood there looking sad and gloomy. And Emmanuel does not mean that you're not going to be sad and gloomy. Epiphany We'll take care of your sad and gloomy. Emmanuel doesn't always. They were present with God. God was present with them. But he had not appeared because they did not see. Their eyes were holding. And they were sad and gloomy. Then the one named Cleopas asked Jesus. I mean, he's a little incredulous here and maybe even condescending. The text doesn't give us the tone, but I could hear it. I mean, they're hurting, and this guy is ignorant to what has just broken their heart. If you've ever been in a really devastated place and somebody comes in absolutely ignorant to that, you can be a little bit short in your response to them. So I could hear this very reasonably. Are you the only person from Jerusalem who didn't know what was happening there the last few days? Are you kidding me? You feel that way when you're in the hospital with your dying or hurting loved one. You feel that way when you're in the hospital bed and you look out the window and see everybody laughing and happy. There's something inside of you that says, how in the world can life keep going on like that with me here hurting? we we, We know that we've got to control that and it's not their fault, but you feel it. Are you the only? They're talking to Jesus. And I want to tell you some of our prayers sound just like this, they're not the only ones who talk to Jesus this way, we talk to Jesus this way. Do you not care what I'm going through? Anybody here ever looked up and said, do you see me? Are you the only one God, creator, boss, are you the only one in the universe who doesn't see my broken heart? This is not an uncommon prayer, and that's what it is when you talk to Jesus, and they're talking to Jesus. Next verse. Jesus doesn't interrupt the process, and he doesn't say, are you kidding me? I mean, look here. He's gripping his hands around nail prints at this moment, and Cindy, he doesn't even smart aleck or not. He doesn't even look at them and say, "If he would have, they probably would have felt dumb, bad." He doesn't do that. Religion can do that, make you feel really small in order to make God look really big. It's bad religion. He looks at them, still stops short of epiphany, Nettie looks at them and says, what do you mean? Oh, he's a master therapist. And this isn't just famed Rogerian therapy where you let them do all the work and you stay out of it. But he, even God knows that he doesn't do the conception of your spirituality. He doesn't even have the baby for you. But as I often say, he is a midwife who stands tenderly, respectfully at the border of the process, contiguous to it but not over-controlling it. What do you mean, talk about it? They answered those things that happened to Jesus from Nazareth by what he did and said. He showed that he was a powerful prophet who pleased God and all the people. Then the chief priest and our leaders had him arrested and Jesus is holding his fingers against the prince tighter now. He wraps his arms against the robe and still feels the tenderness of a hole in his side. Then the chief priest and our leaders had him arrested and sentenced him to die on a cross. We had hoped that he would be the one to set Israel free We're so disappointed. They were disappointed in the presence of Jesus, Emmanuel. But it has already been three days since all of this happened. And I want to say this, not all of the text in Scripture about women's roles in society, life, and the church are found in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians 14, the dominant text. Here's a text about women's roles. Some women, here's here's a text about what women have faced, not just in the church but in society. A commentary had already been made because when Jesus got out of the grave, the first ones he showed himself to were women. And then he sent them apostolos, apostles, you can make them small a, all you want to, but he sent them first ones, harbingers of his resurrection. And they went out and these guys tell Jesus, when the women in our group surprised us, they had gone to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find the body of Jesus. They came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who told them that he is alive. And we didn't believe them. Silly women. And some men from our group went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus like us. So women see Jesus. Men go to the same spot and don't see Jesus. The women say, we believe he's alive. The angel said so. The men say, we didn't see anything, and these men believe the men. Do whatever you want to do with that, but that's a good text. And I want to tell you about these fellas. Then Jesus asked the two disciples, why can't you understand? How can you be so slow to believe all that the prophets said? Didn't you know that the Messiah would have to suffer before he was given his glory? Jesus then explained everything written about himself in the scriptures. I wanna say this, now they not only have Jesus, they got Jesus with the Bible, and they still didn't have an epiphany, because even the presence of God and a Bible in your lap doesn't give an epiphany. You gotta look up from the book into the face. Whatever the medium, whether it's nature, your family, tradition, reason, scripture, whatever the medium, the medium is not the thing. If you make it the thing, it's an idol. You don't look full in the face of Jesus when you're reading the text or looking at the sunrise. But if through the sunrise and through the text you are compelled to read and look up, see and look up, there's always got to be a sense of not just reading, but there's got to be a contemplative sense, a prayerful sense that tells me I will read and then look up. That's what we mean by prayerfully read the text. Pause. You're not just trying to get through the book in a year. You're not trying to get the boxes checked off. You're trying to read and look up. And if you don't look up, even Jesus can read the Bible to you and you won't see him. There's a lot of good stuff in here, isn't there? He explained about himself in the scriptures beginning with the law of Moses and the books of the prophets. And when the two of them came near the village where they were going, Jesus seemed to be going farther. They begged him, stay with us. It's already late and the sun's going down. So Jesus went into the house to stay with them. He didn't stay because they saw the resurrected Christ or had great faith, he stayed and they were set up for an epiphany because these faithful men were good men. They may not have known and they may not have understood and they might not have had the perfect disposition of faith concerning the resurrection, but they were decent human beings who said to a guy they had barely known. I think Jesus may have even liked it better when they invited him into the house because they thought he was a stranger than if they would have invited him in the house to worship him. As a matter of fact, I think that's the way the whole business of the kingdom sets up. Because there's a lot of us that would do really good things if we knew it was Jesus. But he said, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, or didn't do it unto the least of these, you did it or didn't do it unto me. Hebrews said, we entertain angels unaware. Let me one-up that. We entertain God unaware. After Jesus sat down to eat, he took some bread, he blessed it and broke it, and then he gave it to them. At once they knew who he was, but he disappeared. We are, as a church, a Eucharistic people, communion, Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, whatever you call it, doesn't really matter to me. But we are a people of bread and wine And texts like this are so important to us. Because he had been with them just a few nights before, and as he broke their heart with the impending news of his death, he reached over and took a piece of bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, and he gave it to them, and he knew what he was doing at this moment. No epiphany, but the thing that took them from Emmanuel to epiphany was when he could bear it no longer, he reached over, took a piece of bread, And with those same hands, he broke it. And I've always wondered. I mean, the prints were here and here. And they were post-resurrection. I've wondered if he finally took his hands out of the pocket, out of his pocket. Because when they saw him break bread, it wasn't just the way his fingers gripped the bread. They saw the prints. The NCV still saying that this was the sovereignty of God said they were allowed to recognize Jesus. I don't know. All I know is that when they saw who he was, the story doesn't end. I want in my faith journey, I want the crescendo of the story to be building, 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 he broke bread. And they saw him. I want epiphany and appearance to be the crescendo. And yet it's not in this story. We read it and tell it that way. But it's not. The story doesn't say walking along. Jesus came, reads scripture, interacts with them, does soul work. Comes into the house, breaks bread, drum roll. And they see him and they partied all night long, in a holy way, of course. (laughs) They celebrated all night long, crescendo. No, 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 it's not the way the text reads. The text does not even set up, they saw him as the crescendo. The text says, and as soon as they saw him, so you know the seeing him's not the crescendo because it's in this phrase. And as soon as they saw him, drum roll. Here's the crescendo, you want the crescendo of faith and the story of Emmanuel and Epiphany and as soon as they saw him, disappeared. I have been there and I will read you my soliloquy now for time's sake. I have been there, haven't you? Just about the time I feel like I've got God. Just about the time I've wrapped my mind around and dug my fingers into Jesus, just about the time I feel that this is the fullness and crescendo of faith, God goes, Glenn, and disappears on me. I didn't say, God leaves me. That's Emmanuel. That never happens. But I have eyes and I have a soul and I have a heart that needs peace. And Amy, sometime he disappears on me. Or I disappear him on him. My life with God has been a strange, virtually unpredictable mix of appearances and disappearances. My life with God has been a complex admixture of epiphanies and vanishings. Jesus told his disciples that his disappearance his most heartbreaking disappearance on a cross and a grave. Jesus told them in John 14 it was in their best interest. I have told you that I am going to disappear. Go away. And it has made you sad. He told Mary, after his disappearance and reappearance, we call it a resurrection, he told Mary, don't hold on to me. Mary wanted the crescendo to be the appearance the resurrection but the appearance the resurrection was not the crescendo lest he would have said as the resurrected Christ I'm back and if he would have stayed in that form he could have taken over the world and we would have worshiped him wouldn't we but he took her and others out to a mountain and disappeared into the heavens he told Peter on the eve of his crucifixion. Let not your heart be troubled. And that's the most important phrase in the whole deal. Let not your heart be troubled. And when Jesus looks at you and says, don't let your heart be troubled, you know what's coming is not going to be the most enjoyable thing. When Jesus braces you and says, based upon what I'm about to say to you, sit down, get a hold of yourself, get a hold of your heart, don't let your heart be troubled. I go, I go, and he has spent a good part of my life a-going. Whether it's sovereignty and divine coverage or tears and paralyzing heartbreak, God has spent a good part of my time a-going. But if I go, Jesus said, I will come again, Now, there's the benefit of 47 over 37, and I'm guaranteeing you 57 has some benefit over 47. Paul said the outer man perishes, but the inner man's renewed. What's lost here, you get on the other side. We don't always feel like it's equal compensation, but that's when we drag our old tired bodies into church because this is where we're reminded what we're losing here is nothing compared to what's found. And as Godric said, all the death that ever were could scarcely fill a cup set next to the river of life that runs in me. Let not your heart be troubled. I go. But if I go, I will come again. And that's what time affords. There's been enough goings and comings again that the next time he goes on me... It's not easy, but I have a sense of Emmanuel even in the absence of epiphany. You remember in your life, every time there was no epiphany, John, you thought you'd lost Emmanuel. But you get enough of those returns, those coming agains, that in the absence of, I want to tell you, I revel in epiphanies, but in the absence of them, I don't fall apart anymore, Ferleen. I just go sit in Emmanuel. And I say with Job, forward, backward, right, left. I can't feel him, but that doesn't mean he's not here. Hmm. Though I understand academically, scripturally, and theologically that I live in a different part of the Judeo-Christian story, the age of the church, the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, I am not among those who can touch nail prints and wounds inside. But even with the residence of God's ultimate Emmanuel, not with us, but in us, the Holy Spirit, I must say my journey with God is not unlike those who followed him along the dusty paths of old Judea and Galilee. My life has been a mixture of profound epiphany, appearances, showings, and manifestations, yes, but the life of this ordained clergyman has also been filled with disappearances and vanishings that have been just as profound. Disappearances and absences, prevented eyes, inability to touch, feel, recognize or have faith, spiritual paralysis. Why? Why I've asked does this happen to me? Well there was a time I blamed this disconcerting inconsistency on myself coming from a strongly fundamentalist fear-based view of God Anytime the disappearance happened, anytime there was a loss of epiphany, I knew the deficiency was mine. There were enough frailty, sins, and character flaws in me to justify the conclusion that my inability to hold the embrace, keep settled the answers, to see God clearly at all times was completely due to my defectiveness. God had good reason to be a going for me. Couldn't stand me. But then thankfully I heard people of great holiness like St. John of the Cross describe their dark nights of the soul. And I realized that they did not deserve God to leave them in epiphany form. And so maybe it wasn't true. So I entertained the thought in those sophomores days that it was God who was responsible for all of this appearing and disappearing. But not in a sovereign loving way. I began to think that he was playing with us, the divine mad professor, the the laboratorian who treated us like his rats, amusing himself with our struggles. That was C.S. Lewis's cosmic sadist. Thank God that didn't make sense for long. It would be easier to believe in no God than to believe that the primal cause of all things was evil. Mike, it just didn't make sense. Thank God I couldn't hold that thought. So how about no God? Marx was right. You can't live through your teens and 20s or even 30s without doing this. And if you don't do it there, you're going to have to do it later. And I'll guarantee you the splits are a whole lot easier to learn at 9 than they are 53. And so I thought, well, maybe there's no God. Maybe Marx is right. It's all a drug. These religious sentiments are just our mind's way of keeping us from the pits of nihilism. The philosophy that there's no ultimate meaning in life, just organic, Maybe it's just a psychological survival mechanism to keep my soul's nose above the water and all of the struggle and religious cataclysm is just that. But I kept pressing. And I don't know whether it's I couldn't let go of it or it couldn't let go of me. I think probably the latter. And like a flickering light bulb in a long hall without windows or doors, God's appearances on and off have been my journey but I have learned in this long hallway to keep walking and enough of these flickers on sometimes they're even flashes flashes so profound that I think I could never forget them and yet for the life of me I can't recall them now and yet they sustain me like meals that I cannot remember the content of but are metabolized and are a part of me here. These flickers on have sustained me to keep walking even in the dark when the light goes off. And in the dark now, I remember what I saw in the light. I am not a pastor who denies the fact that the light bulb at time flickers off. I am here in spite of these seasons and to some degree the longer I live, I am now here because of them. I am here because the light flickers off and I am here because for me so far it has always flickered back on. And after 47 years of this the light is beginning to feel like the reality to me. It is the thing. It is the something and I've got to tell you it's beginning to deeply feel like someone. In the light there is a presence there that I can see. And the presence is so strong that the darkness, I no longer experience the darkness as the absence. No, I no longer experience the darkness as proof that God's not there. I experience the darkness as being infused with what I cannot see. Light is not the absence of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. And even in absence there is a presence, and the presence is pain. The presence is a loss of feeling, sense, joy, and peace. So even in the darkness now my faith is buoyed, because in the darkness I experience that something by its obvious and painful absence. As an old man told me at the grave of his wife, I would rather hold on to her in pain and loss than any other in flesh. In the darkness, I experience God by God's absence. As Lewis said, hunger is pain. Hunger is the absence of food. And in its absence and pain, it proves that there must be food there. Hebrews 11.1 says as much, now faith is the evidence of things that we can't see. And so the beauty of the story now, I understand, is not epiphany. Because epiphany, the church wisely decided, is followed by the season of Lent. And we dare not skip our way to a resurrection, an ascension or a Pentecost without journeying, following our God even into his own Gethsemane for the disappearance is so vast that he prays until blood drips from his flesh, even to his cross, where even God experiences no epiphany. And we hear God join the human strain, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, but coming to himself, The next words out of his mouth are, Emmanuel, into thy hands, Father, I commend my spirit. There was no absence of God. There could not have been, for he was God. But even God felt the absence of God. Feel no shame. The final thing I'll say before I read to you one of the most important things that I have read in the history of our church, because it's a part of who we are, is that epiphanies do not happen always in instants. More often than not, I think epiphanies are graduated, accumulating experiences with the divine. For me, that's happened. And if you get around religious folks too much and you come to church and you ju- you begin getting the sense that everybody's seeing and experiencing things that you have no capacity for, and it makes you feel like, I don't even want to go there. It makes me feel worse. Please hear me. It is true for some, but there's a bunch of others faking it. Don't believe them. (laughs) Epiphanies are often gradual. And there's even biblical motif for that. The Bible says, Taryn, that one day... Jesus came into the presence of a blind man, and I promise you there was a manual, but there was no epiphany because he was blind until Jesus said, I'm here. And when the epiphany audibly happened, the man reached out tactily and said, please, mister, please, Lord, touch me. You want to see epiphany? Terry, he reached and touched the guy, and the guy's eyes blinked, and like a good doctor, the physician said, Tell me what you see. And in every other occasion, and this is the way I would write them too, Chris, everybody said, got it, done, good touch. But this guy, for the first time in his life, saw anything. And he may have wrestled inside thinking, Brian, am I an ingrate? I mean, am I really going to go back to the guy who gave me the car and say, would you mind putting an air condition in it? But the guy blinked and said, you want me to be honest? Of course I do. It didn't not work, but it didn't totally work. And Jesus didn't say, well, something's wrong with you. Jesus said, and the guy said, that does it. And I don't think the indication there is it's either going to take once or twice. I think the indication there is somewhere in this dialectic between you and the divine, as many touches as it takes, he'll keep touching if you keep asking. So you may not have perfect faith today, but if you've got honest faith, God works really well with that. In light of the idea of process and graduation, please hang with me. At Grace Point, we believe in God, and we believe in epiphany. We believe in the word of God. We believe in the fact that God has spoken and yet speaks to us and yet will speak to us. We believe that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And we believe the Word was not first written, but the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We believe in the living Word of God and we believe the ultimate expression of the living Word of God is still in our midst fleshly. We call this the body of Christ. Those named in heaven and earth by the glorious name of Jesus. We believe that God's presence and image is invested in humans so deeply that the word of the Lord can and does come through people like you and me. And there were things in this, I walk away from here wondering so many times, did God speak through me? There were things in this message today that were so good and so off the beaten path that two or three times I said the best stuff and I had no idea I was going to say it and had never seen it till I saw it with you. And I literally feel like that old preacher that said, oh, take it easy on my Lord, I'm an old man. (laughs) I thought I never saw that. That's good. That's divine. And we believe in the priesthood of believers. That's not my office, it's yours too. We believe this is why Paul the apostle said we should all desire to prophesy, scary word, it simply means to be a vessel of God's disclosure. We believe this is why Paul said we should allow all to prophesy, and that no one's a perfect prophet, and all should judge, but this is a sense, this is a picture of community together hearing the word of the Lord through one another. In light of this, we believe the church should be conversational. We believe the church should be conversational both philosophically and practically. By philosophically, I mean we should have an attitude or disposition of conversation if we are the true church. Conversation should be the lens through which we view ideas and community. I need more than my eyes on a subject and more than my heart on a subject We remember that the body of Christ is the flesh of God and the word was made flesh. And we remember that we are only together that body of Christ. We are conversational practically by encouraging intentional interaction via assembly, Bible study, book clubs, life groups, support groups, recovery groups, accountability groups, Sunday school classes, you name it. Some two and a half years ago, this community joined not only culture at large, but many subcommunities within the religious community and even the Christian Church. Some two and a half years ago, we were thrust, I believe, by a divine wind into a prayerful, mindful, painful, invigorating, careful and hopeful conversation regarding sexual orientation and gender identity. One day I will write a memoir and a large portion of that memoir will be about this life-giving experience. The book is not to be written yet because the final chapters are not yet written. Suffice to say there is much to be said about this part of our church's journey. For me personally as your pastor, I have been flawed, I have been successful, I have been thrilled and exhilarated. And I have been broken almost to the point where I despaired of life, but I have been encouraged. Today I simply want to gather my own wits, gather my own heart and mind and acknowledge a result or rather results of this conversation. I acknowledge that conversations don't always in the realm of mystery and God and human complexity conversations don't nor they should always yield conclusions but they do yield practical results this particular conversation which is only one conversation and I have fought hard for it not to be the only conversation lest we be a monolith and create an idol of this situation that desires not to be an idol this conversation has yielded many different results for us the first of those results is we have learned better the art of conversation which is a holy calling we have learned the art of conversation in tandem with that insight the second thing we have learned or accrued is the gift of virtues we have had nurtured and developed in us better the virtues of humility tolerance, forbearance, meekness, gentleness, long-suffering and listening. We have been reminded that Jesus did not say having mouths to speak they speak not. We are very good with our mouths but Jesus said the problem is having ears to hear they hear not. We have learned the art of listening. Thirdly, we have learned new insights about ourselves, which is not what we desired to learn in the beginning. We went in willing and open to learn about this other. But ironically, as the work of God often does, we go looking for one thing and find another. And in studying carefully this other, forensically, scientifically, and theologically, if we were open in hearing, we learn much about ourselves. Fourthly, we have been graciously subjected to other people's stories and they have been heartening and they have been heartbreaking they have been stories of joy unspeakable and they have been stories of unspeakable pain fifthly we have accrued many new brothers and sisters you are here today because you are simply grateful to find a place like ours willing to engage in vital conversations in spite of their difficulty Thank you for coming and I know you're glad you found us and we're glad we found you. Sixthly, when the conversation began in earnest, I acknowledged that the position of Grace Point as it regards our sisters and brothers who happen to not be heterosexual or straight. I acknowledge that the position of Grace Point was the traditional classic position of a church that we all love dear. And that position was that these people who were not heterosexual as we, they were welcome and we even moved beyond many giving them the privileges of membership but only partially. We gave them the privileges of membership, I said, up to the point of leadership i.e. leading in worship, serving on the board, uh, being a life group leader, etc., etc. I said that we give them partial membership, not only in terms of leadership, but in terms of sacrament. The most dear of sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we extended to them. But the earthly sacraments, the human sacraments of child dedication and marriage, not so. Partial leadership and partial sacrament, was our olive branch I also acknowledged that this position would continue as the conversation ensued I said if this conversation was to be a conversation in earnest we could not predict nor should we rush to a conclusion in varied forms I and other leaders said at this time which has never been quoted back to me but the next part has been quoted often to me. I said at this time, these our brothers and sisters will not be in leadership nor receive full sacrament at this time. It was strange to me then and even now and yet I understand because I understand both sides Strangely, we told them they could serve in certain capacities. We would take much of their grunt work. They were allowed to wash feet, and we would certainly accept their tithe and offerings. But in terms of their gifts of song and teaching and leadership and pastoral care, these gifts were restricted. This position for some was too painful, and they could not bear it. They had loved the Lord too long. They had loved us too long. And the grief of this was too great for them and they could not bear it and they separated from us. For them, I had no judgment then nor do I have judgment now. For these brothers and sisters, I can scarcely imagine what their life and experience even since childhood has been. And So we learned a sixth thing and it has been the most painful for me of lessons. We learned the grace of separation. And I have been so thankful that we have learned that grace so well we have navigated this process that even those who have left us have been gracious I have no horror stories to tell well a couple but mostly no horror stories to tell but we lost not only these who could bear the pain of partial inclusion no longer we lost also other brothers and sisters who are on the other side who so deeply believed they knew God's heart on this matter and sincerely believed they knew God's heart on this matter as being opposed to any expression of mutual human adult sexuality other than theirs. These people we lost because in spite of the fact that they loved Grace Point and they loved all of us and they loved their gay brothers and sisters They could not bear even a conversation lest it promise to yield the conclusion they already had. And I do not blame them. They're on their journey and I'm on mine. And on either side of the fence I would remind you, blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. For all of us, those who have been left on both sides and those two sides remain in this place. This has at the least been painful and at times devastating. On the night of the first conversation that evening portended my journey to come. For as I walked in my house, wrecked and ravaged of heart, weary, mentally and soul torn, I collapsed in the floor at the foot of my bed and my phone rang. On the end was perhaps the dearest friend in the world I have and he was in the first group who had loved too long both the Lord and me. The grief was too great and he wept profusely into the phone and he told me that I had betrayed him. And there was no guile, and there was no vile, no vitriol. His heart was broken. And I lay on the floor, and I thought, kill me. I thought, my, what a man King must have been with all of his frailties to stand between Farrakhan and Malcolm on one side and hating whites on the other, efforting to build a bridge and call mercy for both. And I thought, I am not that man. I hung up the phone from my betrayed friend. And within seconds, another phone call came from a dear friend. And he was devastated, angry, and betrayed that I would even intimate that this might possibly need a conversation. Enclosed. I am sure the conversation has yielded many other things than these. And I am sure it will yield more yet to come. But I do want to and need to tell you finally today one other result that the conversation has yielded. It has not yielded this result unanimously or exhaustively, but sufficiently. And that is that our position that these siblings of ours other than heterosexual, our position that these are siblings cannot have the full privileges of membership, but only partial membership has changed. And as loudly as I hear the claps of hands, I hear even more loudly the hands that are not clapping, and I love you. and you love me, and you are no hater, I know you too well, full privileges are extended now to you with the same expectations of faithfulness, sobriety, holiness, wholeness, fidelity, godliness, skill, and willingness that is expected of all. Full membership means being able to serve in leadership and give all of your gifts and to receive all the sacraments, not only communion and baptism, but child dedication and marriage. And I implore you, whether you ever worship here again or whether you come back next week happier than you've ever been, When all else fails, love never fails. You are mine and I am yours. And inclusion means that we can live together in agreement and disagreement. But if this stretches you to the point of having to compromise your soul and you do need to separate I would be a hypocrite to say I don't understand that because conversely my soul has been stretched to the point that if I do not say what I say today, I cannot be here any longer. And I am not a bully nor a dictator. I have felt this way for many, many years. But I love the body of Christ, I believe in the body of Christ, and as a shepherd, God has called me to this place. I have done it perfectly. I have done it with failures and frailties along the way. And I am not sure I am right. But I am sure I sense the presence of God. And I know I'm doing my best. And I believe before God Almighty to this we have been called. And here we stand And if, dear Barnabas, we can go together, then let's proclaim the gospel. If, dear Barnabas, here we separate, Godspeed. Godspeed. Until we meet again. Because no one knows, dear brothers and sisters, what our journeys will do. But may we commit to those journeys knowing that the greatest guide is the guide of love. And because my heart cannot bear now to see, may we all stand not in agreement or disagreement, but to do what all of us can do, and that's pray for one another. As we all stand as prayerful Christians, Lord, not as in agreement over the issue at hand but as we all stand agreeing to pray we pray Lord in gratitude for the guidance of your loving spirit and we pray Lord from all sides that love would heal our hearts and that love would do its work until finally on that faith-filled day we stand one as you and the Father, sweet Christ, are one. Until that day, may we be good to one another. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said... Go and Godspeed.